Let's turn on our Bibles once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 5 to 9 today. This is challenging in a lot of ways here, out being outdoors. Hopefully you can all hear. I know one of the neighbors uh, said several times that they love to hear us singing out here. So there, one of the neighbors heard that, so that was good. Um, but uh, now I'm not using my usual notes. You know how I use my notes and put them off to the side, and I can't do that out here, so I'm being techie and using an iPad. And apparently I got by with the last time I had a visitor that came and said, boy, you got that whole thing memorized. That's great. And I, I didn't have the heart to tell him I didn't. So uh, but that we, and so I've got an iPad. We'll see how that works today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, you should be there by now. The, um, you know, recently we've had so many celebrity pastors and leaders that have collapsed spiritually, morally. It's become an almost a habit. Uh, you hear about it uh, far too uh, far too frequently, and it's uh, disconcerting. It's so much so that uh, you know, after a recent fall of one celebrity pastor with the Hillsong Group, uh, some people on, on major podcasts and radios and medios, medias have uh, these are secular people. They don't know Christ. Uh, have come out uh, saying, "What what kind of people is this that claim to be followers of the the moral, humble Lord Jesus Christ, but they live like this?" And that's a good question. That's pretty nasty, isn't it, when the unbeliever can call us out. And it's, it's a sad thing. But we're in a, we're in a society of uh, celebrities. And a lot of Christians want to be celebrities. They want to be known. Uh, but I think of a celebrity of about 100 or so years ago by the name of Fanny Crosby. You might recall her. She was uh, just a little pint-sized lady with about 4 foot 10. Uh, uh, she was blind from almost birth. And she was famous for her hymn writing. She wrote thousands of hymns, many of them we still sing today, and if there was uh, probably the most famous woman in the world of her time, certainly in the Christian world, uh, but she lived a humble, quiet life serving Christ, and on her gravestone, they, this is the words that she wanted inscribed, she hath done what she could. Now here's a woman who's done more than most people could even, even imagine, her legacy goes on to today, but on her tombstone, she hath done what she could. That, that's a humble beautiful attitude. Uh, given all the hype of the uh, and hero worship that we find often today concerning A-level Christians and leaders and celebrities, uh, her marker really humbles us and refreshes us as well. well how could a church of Christ, um, how should they evaluate leaders? Let's put it that way. What, what is the biblical teaching about evaluation of church leaders, of spiritual leaders? And the scriptures are not silent about that. We're looking at a really simple passage of scripture today, and that's probably uh, very good for being outdoors like this, more of an informal setting. But it's very important material that we have in front of us. Uh, Paul uses three metaphors to describe a spiritual leader uh, in the local church or God's people. Uh, they are servants, they're farmers, and they're builders. So I want to take a look at those three today. See, we tend to forget some things. Uh, we tend to forget who we are and we tend to forget who God is. And that's some awful things to forget. So let's be reminded today, first of all, who we are. Verse 5 says, first of all, we're servants. It says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. As you recall, divisions have been uh, quite rampant in this church at Corinth, this first century church. And the argument wrapped around leadership, in particular, Paul and Apollos. Uh, who was the better pastor? Who was the better preacher? Who was the better leader? And division had formed over those types of things. And so Paul 
wanted to let these people know that uh, that to elevate the saints is a wrong thing to do. That the saints of Christ, no matter how what their position might be, what their leadership uh, roles might be, they're mere, mere servants of the Lord. They're instruments, as he says, for God. But the word servant here is uh, diakonos, diakonos, which is the word for deacon. And so what we have here is Paul is saying, we, we like Apollos and Paul, Paul is uh, certainly from our perspective, the chief of the, of the apostles. And yet he says to, to us that he is a servant. He's not a master. He is a servant. He is the servant of Christ. And the Lord is the master here. As he, as he looks at this in verse 5, at the it's, last part of the verse is hard to uh, interpret. So let me give you the gist of it. The gist is clear. The wording is difficult, but the gist is this. The Lord has formed his, his people, including his leadership. He's going to talk about the whole church in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Uh, but he talks about the leadership primarily here. All these people, uh, God's people, have been formed and created and put together and given opportunities as God chooses to be servants of his, to be instruments for him. Uh, and so when we try to make little gods, uh, little celebrities or big celebrities out of, out of servants, we're, we're in trouble right off the bat because we are not masters, we're not celebrities, we are servants, we're instruments in the hands of God. Be very careful with that, folks. Uh, even in our circles, we can divide up over those things. Somebody can say, I, I am of this pastor, I'm of that spiritual leader, I follow that person. Uh, you can honor these people, you can respect these people, you can learn from these people, but only Christ is our master. And let's keep servants in their place. If you, if you were going to have surgery, they're going to do a very detailed surgery on your heart, let's say, and when you're done and you're well and you look back, do you praise the scalpel or do you praise the, the skill of the, sur of the uh, surgeons and those that worked with that team? I'd assume you appreciate the instruments, but the one that did the work is the one who deserves the praise. We are instruments. We're scalpels in the hands of the master. The master is at work. We have a privilege of being part of that by his glory. Secondly, we are farmers. Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God has caused the growth. He wants to emphasize three things here in this metaphor of a farmer. First of all, we do play a valuable role. That role is that... Uh, he says here is not concerning, by the way, individual salvation. Now, the context here is not the individual salvation of people, although that's mentioned kind of in the verse before. But he's talking about the church in general, the larger church, the, the, the whole body. And what he's saying here, and he's going to be talking about this for the rest of the chapter, is that I have planted a church. Certainly I have planted a church by bringing people to Christ. That's part of the process. But nevertheless, he's a church planter. He's planted a church. And that's why when we talk about like the Jacksonville work, we talk about planting a church. That's what we're doing. That's what Paul was doing. He says, said, I planted. So, I, so in this particular metaphor, he planted the seed of the gospel and he planted the seeds that would grow the church. He did that. He was there for quite some time to do so. 18 months, if I recall correctly. But then following him was a man named Apollos. He was not an apostle, but he was a wonderful preacher, a learned man, a man of capable uh, for the Lord. And he watered, he cultivated the, the soil. He followed Paul. Paul was the planter. Uh, he was, in a sense, the pastor for a while. 
cultivating, watering, helping these people grow. So he did that. But he says, even though I planted and Apollos watered, God caused the growth. Uh, Paul, could, Paul and Apollos could only do so much. And the God was the one who does that. See, so the church, he says, is a field. The church is the, the farmland. People have a role to play in planting and cultivating, but only God gives the true growth. Because only God can change hearts and lives. Only God can make a difference spiritually in people's lives. We can, we can plant the seeds, and we can water it, and we can set up the programs, and we can do this, that, and the other. But the bottom line is God is the one who causes the growth. Secondly, he wants to emphasize not only that, that uh, we, they play a vital role, but also, verse 7, he gets very, it gets very humbling here. In verse 7, we are nothing. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now that is very shocking, isn't it? Uh, for, for those of us who might think we're, we're essential, we're absolutely necessary for the cause of Christ in one way or the other. And then uh, Paul admitting that he planted in Apollo's waters. And then he comes along and says, well, you know what? Neither, neither I nor Apollo's or anybody else is anything. God who causes the growth. Now that's that's hard to take a little bit, isn't it? I mean, we do play roles. God uses us, but this kind of blows our ego a little bit. We like to think that we are essential, and that without us, uh, certain things wouldn't function. Certain ministries, certain churches, uh, certain uh, things within our own uh, sphere of, of ministry. But that is not the picture we have here. We're not indispensable. Sometimes when I'm looking through different things at the church, I, I, I go through old records of the church to kind of see things. Or I see old pictures of the people that have gone before us. And I look at those things and I, I read those things. And I'm reminded of a generation of people that went before us. People that planted this church in 1938. And people that watered this church through the 40s and the 50s and so forth and cultivated and all these people that have done these things over all these years. And most of us don't even know who those people are. At that time, they, they would seem to be essential. And it would seem that without this person or that pastor or whatever, that church was, it couldn't make it. It couldn't survive. And yet, miraculously, it has, hasn't it? Why is that? Because God is the one who brings the growth. God brings people to work in his ministry, but it's God who does that, not us. None of us are indispensable. And when I'm gone, when the leadership of the church that are presently available are gone, uh, by God's grace, he'll raise up others to replace us and continue the work that he marches out before this church. I hope that the Lord tarries another 50 or 100 years that uh, other generations, our great-grandchildren, will look back and say, well, I don't know who Gary Gilley was, uh, I don't know who uh, this person or that person was, but the church stands today on the word of God and the gospel because people that followed them continue to do so, and the Lord caused the work to grow and be what it was. Thirdly, he says they are fellow workers. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now he says here, he who plants and waters are one, and they labor with God here. He's not saying that we are in lockstep with God. He's not saying we are co-workers with God. 
that would put us in some degree on the same level with God. He is saying that we are in lockstep. We are fellow workers with one another underneath God. That's what he's saying. Now, this is very vital to the argument he's placing before us here because people were dividing up the leadership and causing division over who would follow Apollos and who would follow Paul, maybe some who would follow Peter, and they were dividing up the body of Christ over these leaderships. And he said, look, we are not the big cheese here. <laughs> we are not the one in charge. We're not the one uh, who are, we are in lockstep with one another, but we're all under God. Extremely important for him to see that. And, and what he's really saying is, Apollos and I, are not, we're not rivals. We're different. We have different styles, different personalities, different emphasis, different abilities. But we're not rivals. We're not in competition. We're both after the same, same goals. And that's, we can apply that today, folks. Uh, we look around us in our local community or other places, and we see other churches uh, that do, don't do things quite like we do, that may not believe everything that we believe, that don't place the same emphasis on things maybe that we do. And, uh, but we need to remember, while we might differ on those things, and maybe we can't work with certain groups for that reason, nevertheless, if they're faithful to the gospel, and if they're faithful to the preaching and the teaching of God's word, we're on the same team. We're not rivals. We're not fighting against one another. And staying with his metaphor of a farm, you can imagine if you had farmers that were plowing this ground over here behind us, and there were there's two farmers going two different directions, planting two different kinds of seed at the same time. It would be chaos. It would be a mess. There would be some produce, but what a mess it would be. So Paul is saying, look, let's not divide up over that. There is one master. The rest of us are servants, and we serve under him. As he thinks about that, then we, we, we think today of these different ones who are, are, as we work together, and we sometimes it's hard for us to think, you know, other people have greater ministries than we do and so forth. But keep in mind, the Lord evaluates things very differently. Someone has said the world sees influence in relation to power, money, numbers, and success. God does not, as we'll see in just a moment. I read a story, uh, an account just recently of a pastor nearing retirement who said he remembered when he was a, was a little boy that the, the cutting-edge technology of his day was flannel graph. Now, that was, that was a cutting edge. You remember that? I grew up under flannel graph. We, we've used flannel graph here. We might still use some in certain places. Not a bad teaching tool. But he says as he was growing up, he had one Sunday school teacher who taught apparently forever to all these kids, and she was a master of flannel graph, and she loved her flannel graph. And she would have the kids put stuff on the board. You know, remember doing that, some of you? And that kind of stuff is kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, he said uh, he remembered his teacher, Mrs. Williams was her name, you remember uh, her always putting up the flannel graph figure of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was getting pretty worn. And one day, him and little Jimmy, Jimmy Smith got in a fight over who could put the Apostle up and tore the little Apostle's head off. So now the Apostle didn't have a head. Uh, Mrs. Williams uh, uh, taped it back together and put it back up. A year or so later, a bunch of other bad kids spilled Kool-Aid on the Apostle Paul. And now he's discolored. His head is wobbling. He's all disfigured, but she kept on using him. And as he thought back as a pastor years later, he thought, well, not only was she teaching excellent biblical stories concerning the ministry of the Apostle Paul, that was wonderful, 
But she's also teaching something else. If we're going to serve the Lord Jesus, expect, your, expect some tears once in a while. Expect some discomforts, some discoloring. Expect to run into some issues on occasion. Uh, if you're going to serve Christ, you're not going to get out of this life without some scars, some battle scars for the cause of Christ. Paul had all sorts of them, didn't he? Somebody's always beating on him, throwing rocks at him, putting him in jail. Uh, he had all sorts of battle scars, but he kept on going for the cause of Christ. And so they, as he did those things, we're reminded that it's the Lord who, who, plant, who uses us in his field. For his glory. Now there's one more thing he wants to say at the end of verse 9. One more metaphor. And that is that we are builders. Just one line he says here. You are God's field. God's building. So he's switching metaphors from a farmer to a construction worker. From planting a field to erecting a building. And he's going to now bounce off that particular metaphor. For verses 10 on down. To talk about building God's house. Wonderful, wonderful material that we'll pick up on next week. We, we, we're not going to look at it here, but it's the dominant theme going forward. I, I want to back off now. We've looked at the, that the people that the Lord uses, and we see that they're servants of God. We see they're farmers in God's field. We see they're builders of the building that God is erecting. But now we want to move back to God. Let's take a, a quick look at the Lord himself here. We're going back over the same material from a different angle. Notice as Paul draws our attention to God, he reminds his readers that it is the Lord, not the servants, who do a number of things. The Lord does this. He gives abilities. Verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants to whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? Who gives you the ability to serve? God. Who could take away that ability at any moment? God. Our, our we are always dependent upon him. He's the one that gives that. And that really puts us in the humble position. You know, it, it's not because I'm smarter or I'm more gifted or I'm more this out of the other. It's because God has given these things. And we're always at the mercy of the plan and the purpose of God. He is the one that gives that. That puts the emphasis where it belongs. Secondly, he's the one that causes the growth. At the end of verse 7, he says, but God who causes the growth. At the end of verse 6, he says, but God who causes the growth. So he's emphasizing that with a double emphasis. Paul is happy to play out his role. He is thrilled to be, uh, to, and appreciates the fact that the Lord would use him as an instrument for his glory. And we all should be there. He's not minimizing the opportunities to serve Christ and the privilege that is ours to do so. It's the most wonderful privilege imaginable. He's not, uh, he's not de-emphasizing that, but he is lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. He's lifting up God. And he's saying all the credit belongs to him. Now think about it for a moment. Through human effort and ability and techniques and so forth, uh, a church can be built with a large number of people and incredible ministries. We can, we can set all that together, but we can never save a soul. We can never cause spiritual growth in the life of anyone. All we do is play out a role that the Lord has given us. It is he that causes the growth. Twice he says it. It is he that causes the growth. And that puts us in the place we should be. Let's do our, our job. Let's do what God has called us to do. Let's, let's do what God has gifted us to do. Let's never forget 
that it, this is a supernatural thing that happens. If a person is saved, if a person grows in Christ, it's a supernatural thing that is taking place. And he's the one that is responsible. Also, the third thing we would look here, we see that the Lord gives abilities, the Lord causes the growth. Finally, the Lord brings the reward. In verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now he's going to talk about this in the, the verses, the paragraph that follows. He's going to talk about what we call the judgment seat of Christ and the time when the Lord will reward his people for what they have done for him. So we'll look at that the next time as we go further in the chapter. But what he is saying here is this. Our re the Lord is the one who rewards, but I want you to notice how he rewards according to his own labor. In other words, you're never going to be compared, folks, to some gigantic missionary giant from the past. You're not going to be compared to somebody with great gifts and abilities in the present. Nor are you going to be compared to the puniest, wrinkled up, old pruny Christian you could find somewhere. You're going to be compared only with yourself. He says here, according to his own labor. You're going to be rewarded like Fanny Crosby for what you have done with what the Lord has given you. With the gifts, the abilities, the opportunities that are yours, on that basis, the Lord rewards his people. The main point then of our passage is that, that the church is a field, the church is a building, but the church belongs to God. Paul and Apollos belong to God. The church belongs, the people belong to God. And if that is true, then he is in charge, right? It's his blueprint. It's his design. It's, he is the head of the church, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. We follow his demands, not people's, his instructions, his plan. And to him belongs then all the glory and all the praise. No individual deserves that. It doesn't belong to apostles. It doesn't belong to pastors. It doesn't belong to key leaders. It belongs to God. A number of years ago, somebody was telling me about a church they knew named Carroll Bible Church or Carroll Baptist Church. I can't remember. And I thought that was a funny name, kind of an unusual name for a church. So I was asking the individual about that. Who, well, Why was it named Carroll Baptist Church? And I was surprised at the answer. The answer was that there had been a, a former pastor there. His wife was named Carol. And she was such an influence, such a godly woman that the people loved her so much, they changed the name of the church to Carol Baptist Church. And I thought, well, wow, is that weird? You know, as wonderful as she might have been, and she might have been the greatest saint that walked on earth in a long time, uh, as weird, it, but, it, but still, she was a servant. Carol Bible Church or Baptist Church is not to be named that because, you know what? It's Christ's church. It's not Carol's church or my church or your church. It's his church. All the glory belongs to him. It's his, it's his field. It's his farm. It's his building. We have the privilege of being part of that, and we thank the Lord for that. Join me in prayer as our team comes for a final song. Father, we thank you now for this time together. We thank you that we've had the privilege of being outdoors once again to worship you together in, the, in this manner. Thank you for those that worked hard to put this together, for things going well today, even, even the weather, Lord, which could have been very, very bad, and yet it was excellent. And once again, we thank you for that. Lord, as we continue our fellowship and inside and then our Sunday school classes afterwards, uh, we look forward to that time together in Jesus' name.